It's uh, Father's Day, so we have a gift for awkward transitions, right? <laughs> How many of you guys just absolutely love that, that message of that song? Thanks, guys. Man, it's, uh, it's a privilege to sing worship to the living God, isn't it? Amen. Yeah? We got to be thankful for um, days like this. Uh, where we get an opportunity to reflect, not just on our own family, but on the family that God's given us. He's given us a great family. Amen? We're going to be in a brand new series uh, this morning, Uh, and it was important for us to start this also on uh, Father's Day. We're talking about what it means uh, not just to be well-led in a home, but to lead a life that's pleasing to God. As we uh, get ready to start, I'm just, I was filled with so much thankfulness this morning. It was uh, a privilege for me to be able to see Brendan up here singing uh, some of my favorite voices on the stage, but to have him up there and sing is a gift. And I was reminded that uh, not, not everybody this morning gets to have the same kind of joy. And uh, what, what we don't want to do is every single morning have uh, hardship here, but I do want to recognize in the room a couple of things, and uh, I, I was thankful to see uh, my brother uh, Oli get, get a set of tools. Where's he at? There he is, yeah. <laughs> but also aware that uh, this is a season of life that's filled with a lot of change, amen? We have a, uh, a cancer contingent in the church now, and I'm telling you, it's not my fault. We praise God that this life isn't all that we have. Amen? Amen. And so I'm thankful for the blessing of also walking with brothers and sisters in Christ, even when the next day is all in the Lord's hands and we just wait. But also, sitting in here are are, are both the uh, Lund and the Ryan families. Whenever we experience loss, and and I just want to acknowledge their pain in the room, uh, as you lose a, uh, a father, a brother, a son, um, you pay attention to what is real worship the next time that you get an opportunity. Amen? Because the scriptures declare that we're going to see him face to face. And if all of our hope is here, then we are miserable. But if all of our hope is in Jesus, uh, then when they've been up there, no matter how long they wait, right, it's just still day. There's no night in his presence. It's still just today. Anybody can wait later today to see family, right? And every single one of ours are waiting till later today when we all meet with them in front of our King. So what we're here is about not just some platitudes and some comfy thoughts, but this morning we're packing our bags for eternity, but also we we need to live like those who are in transition. True? That's what we're called to be. We're called to be those who live differently from the world because this is not our happy place. All right? This is our training place. This is where we get ready for what it is that he would have us be in eternity. This entire series we have designed so that we would be able to start asking questions. As a culture, we don't do this well. We find a bumper sticker and we start to shout it. All right? That's what we do in our culture. We find some platitude or something, and and in our Christianity, it's no different. We have some little theological tidbit or some, something that uh, sparks our 
attention, and we shout that at everybody around us. We have not learned well uh, how to engage uh, in, in a practical conversation. I want us to be able to, this was originally going to be an apologetic series where we take a look at, at different things that we uh, need to make sure are settled before God, but I, I want us to come away knowing, first of all, where the truth is. If it's just in man's ideas, it's terrible, but if it's in the book, it's set. Amen? So we want to know where we can get our answers, but I also want us to come away as a group of believers and be able to gently even ask questions in our own life. Am I focused on the truth? And the issue is really important because if you just are a set it and forget it Christian, I got these things that I say are true and no matter what scripture says, I'm gonna stick to it, right? And yet when we begin to read scripture, we find out that his ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts and we don't let God speak into our life because it'll mess up our theology. I want us to not just find out what it is, where we can go for truth, but how do we begin to ask the questions that will shape our souls so that we look more like him, we're listening more to him, we're responding to scripture and not our own opinion. That we reserve the offense for those things that are really offensive. And we live lives of grace. Amen? So that's what we're going to be about. This is designed uh, to engage. We're going to be in 2 Peter chapter 1 this morning. And to get there, uh, we're going to take a look at our notes. The opening of your notes, J.D. Greer says, Nearly 25 years ago, I chose to believe in Jesus because I could find no other satisfactory explanation for his life, death, and resurrection other than that he actually is who he said he is. His life, his teaching, his fulfillment of prophecy, his beautiful character, his resurrection from the dead all overwhelmingly demonstrate that Jesus really was divine. No one else in history has ever been like him. It seemed obvious to me that he couldn't have been a liar, a lunatic, or a legend that grew over time. He is the Son of God. Even after being convinced of that, however, my questions about his ways kept me from a confident faith. I am in part the product of a Christian culture that has fostered and promoted a small, domesticated view of God. Western Christianity, in which I have been immersed, focuses on the practicality of faith. We present God as the best way to a happy and prosperous life. We show how God is the best explanation for unanswered questions, the best means to the life we desire. Our worship services seem more like pep rallies accompanied by practical tips for living rather than encounters with the living God who stands beyond time and whose presence is indescribably glorious. These shallow glimpses of God are fine as long as our faith remains untested, but when they are but they are utterly insufficient in the midst of serious questioning or intense suffering. The question for this series is, where do we go from here? How do we get to the place where our understanding and experience match God's will and way? Just a, a, an amplification of what I said at the beginning. I feel like we have lost the ability to seek truth. We have mistaken loud for persuasive. What I would love for you to be able to hear is as we read Scripture I want you to, to not just hear the voice of God in Scripture, but I want you to sense how far we are from His opinion. How many times we have let other things come in and dictate how it is that we are supposed to live the Christian life. And the questions we should be asking 
Or what is it that will take for me to get in tune with him? Okay? Are we all right? You guys ready for this? Okay. Second Peter chapter 1, starting verse 2. Let's stand as we read God's word together. The scripture says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Boy, that's just a, a great sentence right there, isn't it? Grace and peace. Who wants more of that? Seeing that his divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these, by his glory and excellence... He has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that's in the world by lust. Literally, folks, it would take us week after week after week to unpack what we just said right there, okay? Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control. In your self-control, perseverance. In your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. In your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Do you believe it? You may be seated. Father, as we just unpack a portion of what this passage means, as we just look briefly uh, even at how this passage assaults our culture, uh, it assaults the way that we have culturized Christianity. Father, I pray that uh, you would give us a glimpse of what it means to live in grace and peace, to be transformed by truth that we didn't come up with, that we didn't manufacture. It's discovered as we read your word. It has been given to us, and we are allowed to live up to it. Father, I pray that you'd help us to do that in Christ's name. Amen. I want us to think about a couple of things. As you go through this passage, there are so many things that we could spend our time on this morning. What does it mean to have grace and peace? What does it mean that his glory and excellence has granted us promises that have us experiencing the divine nature? All of these statements in there are worthy of your time. If you are spend time during the course of this next week in devotions and you don't know where to read, come back here. This is worthy of your time. This morning, I just want us to make a couple of observations, especially when it comes to our own culture and how the culture that we have brought into Christianity has caused us to turn off thinking about God, God's way, and has caused us to begin to respond in our Christian life the way our culture does. The result is that Christians don't look that dramatically different from the world. That's travesty. We don't look that dramatically different, and the real problem is that when tragedy strikes, we don't have a different hope. 
We're not living as if there is an eternal God that has created plans and a path for you and I to walk in that will cause us to experience grace and peace. So how do we get there? How do we get to a life that is different, that is focused on his opinions, that is focused on his plan? This passage unpacks that. I just want to address three aspects of this. The first one, uh, and, and all of them as they relate to cultural Christianity, how cultural Christianity has invaded the church and caused us to lose three things. The first thing that we've lost is a result of cultural Christianity and that you may have lost if you've bought into some of the culture that's infiltrated the church. Uh, one of the three things that we have lost is our identity. As cultural Christians in the United States, we have forgotten our identity. You know, uh, just this last week, there was a news article about Google. Google has changed the salad emoji. Not kidding. Look at it. Before, the salad emoji, look at that. It was not an inclusive salad because it had egg in it. And they said vegans could not appreciate the salad. Not only that, uh, as a result of that, a bunch of other people fired out emails saying, well, I've also been irritated by the way that the goat looks, and they had a few other things. They, they not only took the egg out of the salad, they also took the angry eyes off the goat emoji, because I think when you're sharing the goat emoji, you're sharing deep, deep emotions. It's interesting in all of the people that are responding to this, and it's a bunch of people that are worried about, well, now the salad isn't what I wanted it to be, and what about this salad? And, and eventually some guy draws a cartoon on there that shows our skin before 1997, which is some significant moment in Google's history, our skin before 1997, and it's this big, thick thing, and then our skin now, and it's this tiny, thin little piece of paper. We have become a thin-skinned, easily offended generation, Right? Every single thing that we say as a culture, and I'm going to say most of the stuff I say is offensive. <laughs> we get thin-skinned. We are easily irritated and so worried about inclusion that we are afraid to say anything distinct. We cannot go anywhere with a passion without offending somebody. Do you know that? The fact that you have to choose a direction offends people around you. Why can't we just be? <laughs> Here's our identity. Youth today are being told that they have to choose an identity or earn an identity. The salad emoji is just one of those problems. When we choose an identity or when we earn an identity, we end up in a world of trouble. There's a key statement that's made in here. And the assumption is that for all of these who have received, verse 1 says, the same faith, okay? The same kind as ours, by the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Not by works, not by anything that you've done. You have received a name. You have received a position. Everything has been done by God. Do we believe that? That's been accomplished. Grace and peace be multiplied to you, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. For by these he has granted to us, that, that word there each time, granted, granted, is given. He has given to us. He has assigned to us. As children, we have certain things that have been handed to us that we did not earn. A position that we could never fulfill outside of the hand of God moving into our life and changing our situation. 
But our youth, our entire generation has been told that they have to choose an identity or earn an identity. You have to look down deep inside of you and find out who you are or what's in there and then live that out, right? Tim Keller, just recently talking to a group of college students, identified some flaws in that thinking. Why is it that uh, you can't choose an identity or earn an identity? He highlighted the fact that uh, when you try to choose your own identity, when you, when you choose an identity based on your sexuality, when you choose an identity based on uh, whether you're an artist or a regular worker bee, somebody said, when you choose an identity based on what you can accomplish or based on certain activities that you do, when you choose that, there are some flaws in your thinking. When you think you have to earn an identity, it begins to get shaky. First thing that he highlighted was that it's unstable. When you choose your own identity and you're choosing that at a certain part of your life, when are you supposed to choose that identity and when are you supposed to start living it out? Do you make that decision when you're a teenager? The unstable part of this is you never really know your own mind. Do you remember what uh, 20-year-old you thought of 15-year-old you, right? Ridiculous. Uh, it gets a little longer, the stretches, right, where you feel like maybe you were a little wiser. But do you remember what 30-year-old you thought of 20-year-old you? Crazy. You remember what 45-year-old you thought of 30-year-old you? Nuts, right? 65-year-old you, what do they think of 45-year-old you? Every single stage of life, we think we're fools, Okay? We look back on that stage and say, man, I did not know what I was talking about. I did not know where I was headed. So at what point are you supposed to choose your identity and live up to a standard that you have picked? A 15, 20, 30, 45? The whole idea behind a midlife crisis is I did not know what I was doing at the beginning, right? And it's pervasive. It's unstable for you to choose your own identity or think you can earn it. It's also incoherent. You're supposed to look down to the deepest part of who you are and find those things that really matter, right? But what happens when you look down inside and you love this person, but you also love this job, but you also love this location, and when you look down deep inside of what you really want, all three of those loves are equal. Now they're in conflict. So then what do you begin to say? Well, I need to find out what the deeper love is. Well, no, you just have an affinity for one of those at that moment, and it can change if you have a mocha. Isn't that true? It's incoherent. It's not just whether or not other people are telling you what it is that you're supposed to want. You end up wanting things differently, and you have to find somebody to blame when those things change. It's an illusion. It's unstable. It's incoherent. It's an illusion, he said. We've been handed a grid by society, and the grid gets laid on top of our life, and then we think we're making deep decisions because society has told us the way that we ought to think. He says, if you go back to the Saxon warrior, and this was his uh, illustration, he says, the man is walking down the street, and in that shame and honor culture, it was an honorable thing to conquer or to kill. So as he is standing there, and he's walking down the street, he looks down into his life, and he says, man, I just want to conquer something. I just want to kill that group, or I want to attack this other group. And he lifts it up. But he also looks down inside of himself, and he sees same-sex attraction. And he says, oh, no, I need to suppress that. I need to remove it. Now you go to 21st century, and you're in Portland, okay? 
The man looks down inside of his life, and he sees the desire to attack. He sees the desire to destroy. He sees the desire to set himself apart from other people. And he says, man, I need therapy, right? But I look down inside, and I find same-sex attraction. I look down inside, and I find cultural values that have become a highlighted thing right now. And I say, oh, that's what I am. I must be those things. In every single generation, you check it out on your own. Even cultural psychologists say society puts pressures on us to be and to think and to activate certain things. Certain things are right. Certain things, certain ills are set aside or ignored for a greater good in their mind. And we have all of these things that we have to face. It becomes incoherent. It becomes unstable. What is it that we're actually supposed to believe? Why do you believe that there are so many choices being made by the group today, by our society today, that are the same choices other people in our society are making? When you go on Facebook and you say, I'm no longer going to let them tell me how to live, well, well, who are you rejecting? If you're rejecting your family, you want to know what you're doing, you're just looking for a new set of cheerleaders, right? I'm going to find somebody else to back me, and if they don't, well, I'm going to go back to wherever I will get the support. It's an illusion. But finally, it's a, it's a huge pressure. What happens if I pick an identity or I pick a path and I can't fulfill it, I can't live it out, or my proclivities change? Now what? I've just told everyone this is who I am. Now the pressure is you need to not only choose once, but you need to choose wisely, and it needs to absolutely be choosing a truth that everybody else can see. You can't change. Now you have to live out whatever that is, even if it's falsehood. The pressure is intense. You don't have that same kind of pressure when you've been assigned a position. Now, I'm not saying that it was all good. I'm just saying that it is much easier when you are born into a family and you are a son and they say these are the things you receive as a result of being a part of our family. Just live up to them. And what God says in Scripture is I've given you certain things as a result of your position. You don't choose it. You don't earn it. None of those things. You are just supposed to live up to these things. Change what you find down inside of you to fit with what it is that I say about you, and you will have the greatest joy. That's what he says. And we got a little silent in there, didn't we? We just touch on some areas where as a culture, even as Christians, we're not supposed to speak. Our inability to seek truth in our culture is really because we've mistaken loud for persuasive just because people are shouting at you that this is what you ought to be or this is what you ought to consider. What God says with that still, small voice is, you read my words, my thoughts. If you want grace and peace, you follow my standard and it will change you. Your identity is secure and no matter how you falter, you're still my child. But come this way, child. The key word there is given, granted, he has handed us these things as his children. God-given identity is bestowed. It's not earned. It is not chosen. The question I would have, there's a little blank there in your notes. Uh, I, I want you to ask these questions, and this is the first one. Are you trying to assert your identity, or are you trying to live up to one? As cultural Christians, we have forgotten our identity. A second thing, though, that I see in this passage that we need to 
wrap our minds around is that uh, as cultural Christians in the United States, we have forgotten how to live. For by these he has granted us precious and magnificent promises. Those things have been given, given, given. Everything that it means to be his child is ours. Now because of that, he says, you choose to live a certain way. So there's a thing that God has assigned. There's a thing that God has accomplished. There's something that is never getting taken away, all right? You're his son, his daughter, his child forever. But now as a result of that glorious truth, as a result of the promised inheritance, you are to do certain things, live a certain lifestyle, and you will experience that grace and peace in a radically transformed way. For this reason, apply diligence. Okay? That's hard work. It's hard work to be a faithful believer, isn't it? In your diligence... In your faith, supply moral excellence. It's not just that you're working hard, but make sure you're, make, you're working hard about the right things. In your moral excellence, knowledge. Make sure that the right things that you are proclaiming are the right things actually are the right things. And on top of that, knowledge there, that epigonosco, you're actually experiencing the Lord in your knowledge. One of the biggest problems for the Pharisees were they knew so many things that just weren't true, Okay? These are the truths, and they're all living by these truths. But the other thing was, they didn't have an experiential walk with God. They didn't sense God's pleasure because God wasn't pleased with all of their rules and regulations. It is possible for you to live out rules and regulations that don't please God. They just keep you separated from every joy. Amen goes there. (laughs) Rules and regulations don't please God. But when you separate yourself from those things that will destroy your faith, that will impact what God has called us as Christians to be in our culture. When you separate yourself from those things, he says, make sure that it is based on a walk with God. It's one thing to say, here are the rules for a relationship. It's another one to be so in love with your spouse that the rules of how it keeps separated and keep a pure love are easy to follow, right? Because of the relationship, you say it is a joy not to be there or go there or harm our relationship in this way. It's not about rules. Now it's just a joy to please that other one and make them feel safe. Add to your moral excellence knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control. Once you know what it is that you should be about and your walk with with the living God is expressed in the appropriate way, make sure that you do it for life. Don't go weak and fall off the wagon. Don't go weak and head off the trail towards other loves. Self-control. In your self-control, perseverance, you need to do this for life. And in your perseverance, godliness. Once again, the Lord comes back into this, but now your perseverance needs to be that I want to be about him and not be content to be right. Have you ever noticed how many believers in our society right now have worked their way up these rungs on the ladder and they have arrived at a certain lifestyle and they have a certain kind of experience and a certain kind of passion and they are content to tell everyone around them that they just don't measure up. Have you noticed that? That's not godliness. You be so in love with him that it transforms your life. Everyone around you will see it. But if you're following God and and having all of these things happen in your life just so you can suppress the people around you or stand out, there's going to be failure. Add godliness. The last two are of severe importance. In your godliness, brotherly kindness. That means that you're looking around at the people that are here and you say, my love for you is as great as my love for me. 
and in your brotherly kindness love. Agape means I'm going to live out action-wise. I am going to serve you with no strings attached. You can't get to agape love unless you start at the very beginning with diligence. But have you noticed that the plan of God is a grid, it's a ladder. All of the steps are taken in order, and the pinnacle is to have community and selfless love. I want you to hear that once again. The pinnacle is community and selfless love. If you are not interacting in a way here that leads to community, if you are not submitting to community, then something on the trail is messed up. Something on the trail has become self-focused, and your worship is all about your experience and what you desire rather than in God. There's, there's three things in our culture that I see right here in Salem that are at war with this trail. They're at war with how to live. The first one is individuality. Individuality will put you at war with community. You will be irritated by the people you have to be around. God, if you just would have saved somebody smart, right? Okay. How about cool? If you just would have saved somebody I like or other people like me, have you ever struggled with community because it's a struggle for you to let go of you and submit to what is going on in the group? There's a term that's been used in the United States for a long time, gung-ho. Have you ever heard that? You ever heard that somebody's just gung-ho for something? You know, that term actually comes from China. When Westerners were first going over into China, they saw all of these great monuments and great works that were happening, and there would be a group of laborers, and the person that was over those laborers would shout out gung-ho as they would pull on ropes to elevate something or as they were uh, working on a ship. Gung-ho was a call to the community to work in unison. All of the community on gung-ho was supposed to heave or to move in the same direction. They were supposed to work in community. But when the Marines grabbed that and the Marines began to use gung-ho, they used it in this way. They said, man, that person's just really gung-ho for what we're doing. And that meant in their minds that they're putting all of their effort in. But it became individualistic. And isn't that just like us as Americans, to take something that was about the community working in great effort in unison together and make it about an individual's effort? We have changed the word. So when we hear the word gung-ho, we think it's about an individual doing his very best. When that was originally shouted out, it was about a group of individuals working, not saying I'm the strongest, but we are stronger together. That's the term that we're supposed to be using. Individuality is at war with community. Do you know that one person is definitely weaker than 100? Our efforts in the community, if it's just one person, are definitely weaker than if there were 100? That our ability to praise the living God right in here, there is a greater joy when we do that in concert. That's the idea that all of us are singing and doing our part in order to elevate his name. Have you heard me just sing alone? It's not going to add to your community. The idea is that there is a beauty in community. Individuality is at war with community, and we as Americans love individuality, but also self is at war with servanthood. I know I'm pounding this point, but I want you to hear this. There was actually a message that was spoken over a graduating class in 2012, David McCullough. It, it's been highlighted many different times by people. McCullough started his message by saying, 
to a group of high school graduates, you are not special. None of you is exceptional to the gasp in the audience. McCullough began by pointing out to the graduates a physical reminder of their commonplace position. He said, I just want you to look around at your ceremonial costume. Every single one of you is dressed the same. No matter what you did or what you participated in, you're in the same garb because we want you to be aware that none of you is exceptional. None of you is significant. Now it feels irritating, and I just want you to feel in your own mind. Is this the right place for him to say that? Do you sense your irritation as a parent at this guy standing up and looking at your kid? They graduated. Surely they're exceptional. He went on to say, contrary to what your soccer trophy suggests, your glowing seventh grade report card, despite every assurance of a certain corpulent purple dinosaur, that nice Mr. Rogers and your batty Aunt Sylvia, no matter how often your maternal caped crusader has swooped in to save you, you're nothing special. Yes, you've been pampered and cosseted and doted upon, helmeted and bubble wrapped. Yes, capable adults with other things to do have held you, kissed you, fed you, wiped your mouth, trained you, taught you, tutored you, coached you, listened to you, counseled you, encouraged you, consoled you and encouraged you again. You've been nudged, cajoled and wheedled and implored. You've been feted and fawned over, called sweetie pie. Yes, you have. <laughs> and certainly we've been to your games, your plays, your recitals, your science fairs. Absolutely smiles ignite when you walk into a room and hundreds gasp with delight at your every tweet. You've even had your picture in the Statesman Journal. Now you've conquered high school. Indisputably here, we have all gathered for you the pride and joy of this fine community. But don't get the idea that you're something special. You see, if everyone is special, then no one is. If everyone gets a trophy, trophies become meaningless, he said. And our unspoken but not so subtle Darwinian idea, we're in competition with one another. We have, as of late, as Americans, to our detriment, come to love accolades more than genuine achievement. Now, you were sitting here wondering, okay, where does he go with all of this? His final words were this, like accolades ought to be. The fulfilled life is a consequence, a gratifying byproduct. It is what happens when you're thinking about more important things. Did you hear that? The fulfilled life is a byproduct of thinking about more important things. Climb the mountain so that you can see the world, not so that the world can see you. Don't just climb up there to take a selfie. Exercise free will and creative, independent thought, not for the satisfactions they will bring you, but for the good that they will do for others. Then you too will discover the great and curious truth of the human experience, and that is that selflessness is the best thing you can do for yourself. The sweetest joys in life come with the recognition that you're not special because everyone else is. Serve the community. That was his call. Now, that's a harsh slap to an American culture where we all want to be the most significant person in the room. Our self is at war with community. It's at war with servanthood. We don't serve others because we want others to serve us. Final one is consumerism is at war with our spiritual direction. We want what we want. 
I want you to look at this map. Just imagine for a moment that you are picking a map for your life. There it is, Oz at the top. Narnia, Middle Earth, Wonderland, Terabithia, right? Fantasia's down there on the left, Dreamland's at the bottom. There's all kinds of other, Neverland is even up there. We begin to think of what kind of life do we actually want to live, and we begin to look down inside of our life. And, and if you talk to people that want you to do a mind map or to want you to map out what you're thinking in your life, what it is that is of real value to you, you reach inside and say, I'd like to travel this kind of road, and I'd like to do these kind of things. I got to go this kind of place. But what happens when you actually want to go someplace real? What happens when you're trying to accomplish something specific? Taking a Disney map to Portland will not help you find the pearl. You actually have to have a map of that location. What God says is, here is a map for living based on what is real. This is actually how you can get through life. This is how you can actually accomplish being closer to me. He actually lays out the map and says, if you want to get from here to here, here is the real grid for your life. You can't make up all the things that you want. You have to deal with what is reality. And then when I come to understand that only God knows reality, I submit to the plan where he says, you go here, turn here, go to this location, and you will arrive at a place where grace and peace fill your life, where closeness to me is incomprehensible and beautiful. You will experience it. You will have that because you have followed my map and my plan. You might think, well, it's just consumerism that's at war with spiritual direction, right? Well, what if Bernie's right? Do you know what's even true within communism? Just recently, they were struggling in a snowstorm in Russia, Moscow, because all of the piles of snow had come, and they were not able to get their cars going down the road. In fact, there was an uproar from the community. Aren't you supposed to serve us? Aren't you supposed to help us? We can't do what we're supposed to do. Uh, without help, and they weren't getting anywhere with that. And so there actually was an opposition leader, somebody in opposition to Putin by the name of Alexei Navalny. So all they did was a group of people in all of these different cul-de-sacs, if uh, you can call the, the, the kind of uh, you know, cement housing that they have cul-de-sacs, in all these locations where the snow had piled up and they could not get out, they just put Navalny on the snow and took a Facebook picture of it. And so many people were repeating that picture of Navalny. It looked like advertising. And right away, Putin sent all of those communist guys out there to get rid of that name in the snow. He did all of the work, not because he wanted to bless his people. He just didn't want Navalny to get any advertising. I will do something for the greater good because it is of great blessing to me. Now, we can see right through it with him. But how many times have you done something for the greater good because it meant so much to your experience. It's about you. What God says is if you will get rid of that kind of thinking, if you will have agape love, no strings attached, you will serve people because it is the greatest good, whether you get anything at all in return. There is a transformation that happens in your experience. The question we have, by the way, God's grid is the only path to a meaningful life. The question we have at the end here is not do I have the life that I desire but do I have the life that he designed? Folks, we're, uh, we're out of time. I, I want you just to, to write down this thought here. Uh, as cultural Christians in the United States, we've forgotten our hope. It, it says this here, for he who lacks these qualities is blind and short-sighted. Have you ever felt useless? Have you ever felt 
unfruitful. He says, if you feel useless and unfruitful, if you're not following this grid, it's just because you're not looking. The idea of blind and short-sighted is the idea that you have smoke in your eyes and you can't run the right direction. The smoke from the fire has gotten in your eyes. You're trying to get away from it, but you're just reacting to life rather than living out according to a plan. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing of you. For if you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. I just want you to hear this. It's not a question of whether or not you get more saved. You can't get more saved. Any more than your children can be more yours. All right? But you can experience a closer walk. There was a guy down in a redneck village, Roscoe, who had gotten busted for a DUI, and his penalty was to paint the lines more clearly on the road. First day, he paints two miles. Second day, one mile. Now, the officer that was watching over him was still pretty impressed, but he's like, that's half the work. The third day, he paints half a mile. He goes to Roscoe, and he says, hey, what is the deal? At first, you were working so hard. He says, no, I'm working harder than ever. He says, the paint bucket just gets farther away. When we are talking about the glorious supplication that's going on here, it says, for in this way the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied. It's the idea that you will be well supplied on the journey, not just in eternity. The bucket is always right here. The ability to do the work and to experience what he has had for you is right there with you. He will gloriously supply everything you need for the journey if you'll let him. When you feel empty in your faith and overwhelmed and you will not walk forward, it's not because God has left you with an impossible task. It's because you're not following him the way he designed. He will draw near to those that draw near. He will gloriously supply everything you need for the journey. The hope is secure. But sometimes the way we go about it causes it to be thin. We're kingdom people, and everything that we need for the journey is ours. Here's the two tests we have at the bottom. When will I know this is working? The only way that you can tell is time. Over the last 20 years, if we'd been living by Christian principles, will we see some of the news articles that we see? If people had lived in a way that honors others but also keeps appropriate boundaries, would we be having the hashtag MeToo problem? We have falsely lifted up certain things as empowerment and falsely lifted up certain things as the appropriate type of bravado and the way that you ought to attack life. And what God says is when you live in that way, you harm others and society cannot keep up. It's destructive. But 20 years ago, if we'd been living according to God's standards, those people that matter would not have been hurt. Amen? They wouldn't have been hurt. They wouldn't have been attacked. They wouldn't have been offended. And also those that have placed themselves in those positions of power would not have taken that power to abuse those around. The rules right here would have caused harmony, grace, and peace. When is the appropriate time to start? Today. They say the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago or today, right? 20 years ago or today. You want it to be in full flower, you start today. 
If you haven't been living this way and you say, I'm not seeing this kind of result, I cannot understand how to get there, you just start today. You start at the very beginning, and with diligence you pursue God and follow those things out. And he says, I will gloriously provide for each step. Amen? The question is whether or not we trust him. Father, we do pray that you would help us to ask the right questions, to see how profound it is to follow your truth. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to experience not just being right, but, Father, that we would experience what it means to have joy and grace and peace for the journey, that that glorious provision would be our experience. Father, help us to live as examples of what it means to faithfully follow you. Fill our hope. Cause us to experience it. Father, help us to live differently in Christ, we pray. Amen.